0: So I I don't know if you knew this. My guess is that you did and maybe even celebrated it. But this past Monday um, was the Feast of St. Valentine. And you're like, "Ah, yes, I know this. You may know it more as Valentine's Day and perhaps you had a fancy meal or something like that. Uh, But... But what this, I've noticed, means is that there's kind of this two-fold heart hangover that we're experiencing. On the one hand, uh, like we're, there's this communication platform called Slack that these offices gravitate use, and there was on the, the downtown channel, there was this poster to basically have a, a Valentine's like shaming party. Basically anybody who wanted to throw shade at Valentine's Day as like a day, uh, I don't know, for like the social construction of marriage and the patriarchy. But you went there and you had cocktails or something like that. And I thought it was pretty funny and uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't go. But um, it, there's these twofold heart hangovers happening. One is like the emotional draw that, that uh, Hallmark holiday pulls. And then the other one is seen more visibly. Uh, you go into big box grocery stores and you see this section that looks what I imagine would be like a cherub's junk drawer. It's like uh, fluffy bears and chocolates and heart candies. Like all of the heart candies and heart-shaped paraphernalia have been pushed aside because now there's green and uh, clover-themed paraphernalia, you know, the next thing. And Interestingly, as I was reflecting on this, obviously with weird rabbit trails, Valentine's Day in big box grocery stores, I was thinking about that icon of the heart. And all that the heart icon has come to entail. It's not just like food dye and sentimentality. There's a lot more going on when it comes to the matters of the heart. And we actually pack a ton of meaning and significance of the heart. Such that when we talk about affection or we talk about desires or, or really we talk about admiration or even devotion. These become matters of the heart. So we've packed all of this meaning into this. And, and just think about this. Our hearts can both be broken and our hearts can be stirred. We can make decisions with our hearts. We can express gratitude with our hearts. You think of all of the things, and maybe you even say this, or when somebody says it, you don't need them to explain what they mean that they, it like cut them to the heart. And at a popular level, the idea of the heart, it's really come to represent the center of our emotional life. And yet, the heart and the biblical imagination, which is where we're moving into today and what we hope to shape us, it's not just the center of the emotional life. It's actually much more. It's all-encompassing. You see, the heart and the biblical imagination, and I hope this isn't news to you, by the way, but it's not just the center of your emotional life. It's the center of your life. It is the seat of your mind and your will and your intellect. So the, the, there's actually no biblical Hebrew word for brain. Isn't that weird? Like no, so like they would talk about your your guts making decisions with your guts and things like that, or or your heart. And there was an idea that your heart could actually fail you and you would die. But your heart was also where your feelings and how you thought about the world, like where those things found their locus point. And so what happens is that our hearts display our our deepest commitments, what we trust the most and what we love the most, the things that we care most deeply for, the things that capture our imagination, these things are all centered in and around the heart. And you could kind of just say it this way, and the first place I heard this was at a high school youth group, so this is not like my original thought, but I think it was really profound is that what fills our heart leads our life. And that this, like, speaking to a room of of high school students, like, that had resonance, and yet it still has resonance here today with me, is that, like, what fills my heart actually leads my life. And, and yet what's interesting is if you start to do any sort of peripheral research around Valentine's Day, you're not really going to get into the depths of the human heart and the psyche and our emotional desires, like... What you're going to say, is, see really is that this day that is really devoted to the heart is rather disappointing when you start doing research on it. It's disappointing not just at like um, how it became a Hallmark holiday, but when you start thinking about the namesake of Valentine's Day, it becomes really obscure and kind of fuzzy. See, this Saint Valentine, uh, is some people think, okay, well, is this, is this a person who... Um, was executed because he was trying to convert Cornelius II, which is obscure and kind of odd information that you could find on Wikipedia? Or did he heal a blind girl miraculously? Or did he leave her a note that said, you're Valentine? And what, what's the, that's the history? It's all a bit fuzzy and obscure, but what's consistent across that, those different searches, and you can go home and Google it and have a blasty, is the date. This date of February 14th becomes the day that we give our hearts away, and yet it's also the day that memorializes Valentine's martyrdom. And I don't know, maybe, um, maybe I'm just a bit cynical, but like the irony of heart candies and martyrdom just seems a bit incongruent in, in how I'm thinking about this. But I think that Valentine's story actually rests in the shadows of our teaching texts. And so I know that you've most likely gotten as comfy as you're going to be on these bleachers. But um, if you're willing and able, would you please stand with me for the receiving of God's word? We do this with our bodies to say, in some sense, that I can actually respond to who God is and what God is saying. And so this uh, comes from the gospel according to Matthew. You can flip or tap your way on over there or just look at it here with me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, we read this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's, let's read that a- again, collectively. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can have a seat. So despite the, the long and odd intro about Valentine's Day, I'm not really interested in the modern sentimentality or the obscure nature of the actual holiday, or even the saint. Like, uh, was, was Valentine martyred for this reason or that reason? I think those things are fascinating, but I'm not going to bore you with that. See, what, what's really curious to me is about the type of person, because even though the life of St. Valentine is a bit obscure, the reality that he was martyred for his allegiance to Jesus is not obscure. And so I'm interested in who is the type of person who is unwilling, unwilling to renounce Jesus, even in the face of torture and death. That There are people, followers of Jesus today, who are willing to do the same, and yet what I'm pressed with when I look at Valentine's life is this question of, do I want it? Like, do, do I want to be with Jesus in this type of way that even death, like when he's forced to... Offer a sacrifice to a pagan God? He says, No. Do I want that? So, in the words of the novelist Dorothy Sayers, I, I'm really curious about what it is to possess a single hearted devotion to God. Or to use Jesus' language, what does it look like to be pure in heart? And I think this is really where we need to go today. We, we need to consider what is it to have a single-hearted devotion to Jesus. I think this is where the beatitude draws us. And yet there's this um, kind of like a gnat in the summertime lingers unnecessarily. There's a word in this teaching text that lingers almost unnecessarily because as though we may want to follow Jesus, we are hit with a wall called purity and then put a word after that called culture, purity, culture. And for many here in the room, you may sincerely desire to follow Jesus. You may want with the whole of your being to follow the way of Jesus and practice the way of Jesus, except when you hear the way of Jesus attached to purity culture. And I was chatting to Jess, my wife, about this, and she's like, you know, I get that people have gone through this. I never did. She she grew up in the context that's like primed for purity culture and the shame that's attached to it. So I I get this may not be your story, and you may say, this is irrelevant, so why listen? Well, the person to your right or to your left, this may be a part of their story. And this may be a way that then you can extend care and compassion and, and listen empathetically because the reality is, is that when we come to this little language of pure in heart for enough people within churchianity, this becomes a wall and not a pathway to Jesus. And so I just, I, I want to pause and have a little conversation about purity in route to single-hearted devotion to Jesus. How does that sound? you kind of a captive audience, so I appreciate the nods. That's, that's nice, but... I guess if you grew up around the church, really in the late 90s and the early 2000s, this is where um, purity culture kind of came into full bloom. I did not grow up in the church in this context, and so I'm trusting anecdotes and books of people who have, but what I'm, what I'm the best I can understand it, the core claim of purity culture goes something like this. Sexual abstinence before marriage equals sexual prowess in marriage. So purity culture is kind of this prosperity-light theology. You input one set of data and you get a guaranteed outcome. Sexual abstinence before marriage equals sexual prowess in marriage. My guess is, is that if anybody were to self-report around, like if they practice this, did they get the outcome they hoped for? I don't have any data, but anecdotally it, it's, that's not the case. More often, it's frustration. One of my closest friends, when he was telling me about his wedding night, he, he, was, he was just saying, it was a hot mess and not the hot mess you were hoping for. Like, you were like, what, what do we do? How does this work? And then there was like, are we doing it enough? Is it not? Wh-? It creates all of this just chaos. So do you see the bait? Do you see the bait of if you wait, you will be rewarded? But if you transgress any sexual boundary, then you are deemed impure. And this is so curious. And some of the examples that I found were just hard to reckon with. Like in some cases, people being told that you were like tape unable to stick again. Or you were gum having been chewed and spit out unfit and undesirable. One example... I remember hearing in a teaching was a pastor gave a rose at the beginning of a teaching and he had the rose be passed around to everyone. And eventually the rose came back and he gave the illustration like this of who would want this? And the reality is Jesus wants that. (laughs) Like this is the core of the gospel. See purity culture has created an ecosystem of shame around the subject of virginity. And the shaming is generally asymmetrical, and what that means is that it goes disproportionately toward young women. Like, you can be a guy who has some sort of sexual encounter outside of marriage, and you stumbled, but if you're a woman, you're impure, you are like tape that won't stick. Does this sound familiar to anybody in here? I I would, This sounded toxic to me, and I... I didn't experience it, so I just, you start doing some research, it's amazing what you'll find. Now, psychologist Richard Beck wrote a book called Unclean, and in it he, he has this way of making sense of this. He says, at root, purity is a food attribution system. So here comes some science language, stay with me. It's, purity is a food attribution system, a suite of psychological processes that help us make judgments about whether or not it is safe or healthy to eat something. So you really could conceive of purity in several ways here. Uh, for, if, for example, we were sharing a meal and I said, ah, there's a little bit of fecal matter in the curry, but I think it should be good by now. What's your response? <laughs> Are you gonna eat the curry? No, like you don't need, yes, if you're a teenage boy, you might give it on a dare. Um, but you don't need a giant turd in the curry to say no. To the like, You get the point, right? Okay, so what happened to the food? The food was contaminated. And so that's one way to participate in this conversation of purity as a food attribution system. Oh, it's, it's, it's contaminated. I, I'm, I'm not going to eat this thing. But that's a little bit different than what's up and running in most church spaces. What's up and running goes a little bit further than contamination. And again, back in this book, Unclean, he cites to a study where a researcher, he dips a cockroach into a glass of juice. Has anybody heard about this study before? Oh, this is great. Okay, so he gets a he has a room of of participants, and he has uh, a, a some juice, and he has a cockroach. So you, cockroaches, thumbs up or thumbs down? Okay, we're gonna get some thumbs down here. Okay, so he dips the cockroach into the juice, and then says, "Hey, who wants to take a drink? Zach, not you." Um, so maybe if you're a teenager or a middle schooler, you're like, "I'm on it," but. Um, <laughs> Um, normal humans, that is with prefrontal cortex developed, um, they would, you would say what to your offer of this drink? No. No, thank you. Why? Because it's contaminated. So, what does the researcher do? He then goes about the process of pasteurizing the juice. He does it in front of the participants. Now, it is purified. Then he asks them again, do you want it? And what do you think they said? No. No. It's not for contamination, though, because logically you know that that sucker is clean. Well, it's because of this process called permanence. So it's not just contaminated, but it is perpetually contaminated. It is permanently contaminated because it goes further See, the group denies the drink because of permanence. And this is the way that Beck describes it. He says, the judgment appears to be once contaminated, always contaminated. And the implication here is that contamination, a loss of purity, is a catastrophic judgment, creating a state that cannot be rehabilitated. The foodstuff, as we say, is ruined. And if ruined, it is fit for the trash. Can we see, perhaps, why purity culture is so toxic? Because if people are designated as ruined, where are they fit? In the logic of a food attribution system, they are fit only to be discarded. See, the church has filled, whether good intentions or anything aside, the reality is that the church has filled the hearts of many with shame. And if what fills our heart leads our life, it has led to despair. Despair. And so no wonder there is a wall when you start talking about a blessing on the pure of heart and that they'll see God because the word that populates like the the symbols and scenes and scenarios that are populated in the imagination of people who've come out of this culture is an absence of goodness. It is despair. See, this isn't just a matter of like a prosperity, light theology of over-promising and under-delivering. This is a matter of hypocrisy because often it's the very same people who call for purity who are then found to have these abhorrent private lives. And this is one thing about the, the, the church of Jesus is that it, yes, may be very personal, but it is not private. All of these things will be exposed. And so the gift of confession and corporate confession is that we can slowly start to cultivate the muscles that help us to bring these things into the light so that we can experience repentance and forgiveness. See, any framework that designates people who bear God's image as ruined is fundamentally at odds with the gospel of Jesus. And I just, I wanna focus on that word ruined right there because you can disagree with Jesus around his sexual ethic. Like we can have really good conversations and we might even come to the place where we can share together in the life of a community and have disagreements on what Jesus' sexual ethic was then, how it applies now. But if your designation, your ethic, your sexual ethic specifically designates someone as ruined and casts them out, that is not congruent with the gospel of Jesus. So why are we saying this here? It's because I have a guess that there's some of us for whom we've experienced this, and we need to hear that this place is not perfect, but it can be a place of, of healing, where we take steps toward that. It may not be a quote-unquote safe space, but it may be a secure place where you can find a place of belonging and care over a course of time. This is not, we, we are not yet who we want to be, but by God's grace, we're moving toward it. Amen? Amen. See, the way of Jesus, it may be narrow, it may be hard, it may be frustrating. And in the areas of like sexual integrity, it may even feel like a death. But there's one pastor who says it this way, that when it comes to our desires, our strongest desires may not be our deepest desires. So in this community where we're talking, we're, we're going to hopefully reimagine purity here in like the next 10 minutes, so small task. Uh, but, but the hope is, is that we might invite the spirit of the living God to go to work on our deepest desires so they then start to become our strongest desires. Because our, our strongest desires are not often our deepest ones. There's things that are settled beneath. They're in those places of trust. And that is where the seat of our mind and our will and our intellect, that's our heart See, we need the living God to go to work on our heart. We don't just want behavioral performance and modification. We want our actual desires transformed. So let's, uh, let's take up this task then with Jesus' words, all right? <laughs> this is now the sermon on our teaching text. The rest of, this is all introduction. Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's just consider the audacity of that promise. Do any of you uh, want to see God? I would be stoked on it. (laughs) I... I mean, whether you are persuaded by a theological tradition that interprets seeing God as like intellectual and theological, that is like, you'll see the character of God on display, or maybe you're from a tradition that's more ecstatic and mystical, like you are like, no, I want to legitimately experience this. I came here because you're like, quote unquote, like charismatic. We're like charismatic theologically and hopefully in practice soonish, um, but, but you're like, I want it here. I want it now. However you interpret seeing God theologically, the promise is relational. And if you go back through the Beatitudes, there are relational implications in each one for sure. But just consider this. They will see God. What do you think that means? The history of interpretation means it so much. You'll see God in the heavens. You'll see God when you die in the new heavens. and new, Like, what, what is that? You can see God now. You see God in the image of creator. Like, however you interpret it, this is a relational thing. And this is what's so interesting about the, the, the scriptures is that the creator God is interested in making himself accessible to humanity again. See, the, the fundamental thrust of the whole of scripture is this idea of union with God. And this, this little beatitude actually tells part of the story that this union is out of whack. There, there's a disruption in this union with God, and this gap is what the Scriptures call sin. And maybe this word is just as challenging in a wall as purity, and yet... This actually a helpful word. I think sin is a hopeful word because if you're a doctor and you're a diagnostician and you're trying to make sense of the circumstances of someone's life and you cannot name the condition, there is no way forward. And so when the scriptures talk about sin, they are talking about a diagnostic tool, a word for us to hold on to, not to be held by, but we look at sin as this failure to fulfill a goal. If this idea of union is the the reality that we're moving toward, union with humanity and God to represent God in all of creation, and that has been severed by this mysterious invader sin, it's this failure to fulfill a goal. On page one of the scriptures, we actually learn that all of humanity, female and male, are called to represent God as a sacred being who represents the creator, that we are worthy of respect, that humans are worthy of respect, and so sin does this thing where it starts to sever the respect and the honor that are due people who bear God's image. This comes around sexual orientation, gender identity, the color of one's skin, your ethnicity, how you talk. I was listening to a podcast this, week, this past week where there's hosts and one of the gals is originally from the South, but she's lived in different parts of America on the coasts and what happens is the same thing you hear on the news, is everybody sounds the same. <laughs> except for when she went back to the South for a couple months and the draw was, I'm not Southern, I'm not gonna try, but it was coming back out and the other podcast hosts were like throwing a little shade her way of like, "Yeah, I wonder what's gonna, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So in these small little things, you see, we carry daggers in our words and then we place them ever so subtly. That is the reality of Sin. And into this gap, Jesus speaks a word of hope, and he calls it a blessing. He says, you'll actually see, God, that there's a hope of the restoration, that the union is not a foregone hope, but it's something we can step into. Blessed are the pure in heart. And see, I think, I, and so if you can, if that Speed bump of purity is still there. Move with me to this idea of the heart because Jesus' emphasis, I think, is here because the heart is the locus point of our life before God. And you see this throughout the Hebrew Bible and then where Jesus, that's like Jesus' Bible. And one prophet in particular draws on this, the centrality of the heart. It's the prophet Jeremiah. And the prophet Jeremiah functionally sees a whole generation of Israelites lose their heart like lose their way, a whole generation turns away from God, and they start actually sacrificing their children to the gods of their neighbors, and they call that good. They take these, these children, these people who bear God's image, and they give them away to appease another God so that they could live their best life. And they call it good, and they functionally turn their backs on God. And these, this is how Jeremiah sums it up. He says, the heart of a human is deceitful above all, irreversibly sick. And he asks this question that's kind of rhetorical, but is pointing for us today. Who can understand it? Have you ever been in that moment where you're like, I did not want to do this? <laughs> or you've been caught up in some weird relational triangle where you're like all of a sudden caught up in a fight of your friend and you're like, I didn't want to be involved in this and yet they're being an idiot and I'm not really helping. Who can understand the human heart? If you've not experienced that yet, like, I'm imagining it's coming soon probably in this community. Like it's just the the human heart, it seems to just be all sorts of ways caught up like a nasty hairball that's thrown up by your cat. It's just kind of gross at times. And yet Jesus is saying that there is a hope for the human heart that you will actually see God when it is pure. So what do we mean? What does does that actually mean? Well, uh, Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard, he helps us out here. He says, purity of heart is to will one thing. Now what's interesting is that's the title of a book he wrote in preparation for confession. And if you start reading through, it's it's not super long and yet it's really hard to read. I tried and got like a chapter and it was terrible. Um, purity of heart is to will one thing. So what is that one thing? Well, think about those words of Dorothy Sayers again. And we could actually then fashion our beatitude this way. Blessed are those who possess a single-hearted devotion to God, for they will see Him. See, if purity heart is to will one thing, and we could say that one thing is the way and will of Jesus, who, and we hold Jesus there because Jesus says, I do nothing apart from my Father. J- Jesus' whole life is to do the will of His Heavenly Father. And as we commit our life and our way to Jesus, we're actually stepping in the tradition and the movement and the flow of Jesus. And to be clear, single-hearted devotion, it's less about a hierarchy of desires where then I place Jesus as the chief desire. I don't think that's absent from it, but it's a little bit more because if I just have a bunch of desires, let's say I want to, I don't know, live in a more ideal home or have a better paying job or I I want my kids to get into this school or I want to travel to these places or I want this type of sexual fulfillment, those are... I don't know, neutral to good, pretending, I don't know, they're just things. But if I just rank Jesus there at the top among many of those desires, the, the scriptures have another diagnosis for that. It's called idolatry, where Jesus is just one among many. And I, I know maybe idolatry doesn't really feel like a heavy-handed word to you, or maybe it feels super heavy-handed. I hope it feels really heavy-handed. Because when Jesus is calling us to this single-hearted devotion, which I think is a really helpful way to talk about purity of heart, in other words, he's not just saying, rank me at the top and everything will fall in line. It'll get a little trickle-down economics of the heart. No, it's actually going to do something. I need something more than just that. I need to transform your heart. So this is really about getting Jesus into the nooks and crannies of all of those desires so that he at the center of them can transform them. How how are we doing? (laughs) See, I, I can be the type of person who wants to rank Jesus and hope everything falls in line. I can also, and this that feels more relevant to me, I can be the type of person who wants the right things for the wrong reasons. This is, I don't know, like even this morning, I, I we're gonna have a meeting. We have a meeting with the board at eight. And so I get here early to, and I'm telling you this to obviously give a little pat on the old back here. Um, but I'm, I get here early to set up the sound stuff. This is great. And I'm like, I'm just going to do it because it's going to free stuff, sub stuff up. We're going to be great. But then we are standing literally right here in the hallway and I make a passing comment about it. I'm like, oh yeah, I just was here really setting stuff up. I told Gray, I was like, yeah, everything's ready for you except for this and and as I'm walking back to the room, I'm like, crap, I'm going to teach on purity of heart. And yet in that moment, like, I, I wanted to do the right thing. That is, like, to actually come alongside and make this helpful so we can exalt the name of Jesus. But then I also wanted a little bit of affirmation in that moment for having, you know, done the thing. That is kind of my job. Um, Anybody else for this? Maybe you go to dinner sometimes and you're with a group of people and you want to, you, you're like, I'll, just, I'll pay. You go, you go to the server and you say, don't let anybody know. But what you secretly want them to do is come back to the table and hand you the check so you can sign it. Come on. Have you done it? No, just me again. Okay. See, we may want the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. This is called moralism. Lord help us. See we need we need Jesus to be in the nooks and the crannies and that is scary. See and this is a part of the rich tradition of the scriptures Maybe you're reading through the Bible and you're finding your way into Deuteronomy and you're like, I made it through Leviticus, praise God. And now you find yourself in Deuteronomy 30 and here you hear this from the prophet Moses. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. If you don't know what that is, Google it later. It will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. See, Moses is talking to a generation um, that is about to go into the land of promise. This land where they will indeed be with God and God will be their God and they will be his people. And in that place, Moses is saying that there's some stuff that needs to take place. Circumcision, which is this marker of covenant identity just for men in the, among the Hebrew people, Moses is saying, no, all of the people need a part of their hearts, the core of who they are, cut away so that their love and loyalties can be aligned to God. All of the people. It's so inclusive and yet it is so brutal because this odd metaphor about cutting away part of the human heart is God's way of saying, I want all of you. And I don't, I don't want to domineer you, I don't want to manipulate you, I don't want to control you to, like, I don't know, will you into obedience or something like that. No, I want all of you. I want to get down into the place where you are divided, and I want to bring a single devotion to me. And, and, and see this again in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 36, what does it say? God wants to do this with the people so that they may love and live, I think sometimes we have this imagination that God wants to get into my business, and he he would do well to just wait for me to invite him. He's a gentleman after all. He's not gonna go where he's not invited. No, I think God is saying, hello, I'm here, let's do this. And maybe that's just my language and how he speaks to me, but for you it might sound a little bit different. I hope it does. My point is this, do you want it? By the way, a church is a voluntary participation. (laughs) Like no one is being compelled to be here. This is a community of invitation. And if at any point it starts to become a, a community of manipulation or coercion, it is failing to be a community of Jesus. And I need you, we need you to call that out because that is toxic. We want this to be a community of invitation. And a community of invitation is one that responds to the request of Jesus, to the commendation of Jesus, and says, yes, I want it, and I need my wanter repaired. Because what I realize is that my heart actually leads my life. What fills it is going to pour out of it. You see, I think this question that's lurking behind our teaching text of like, do we want to be with God, is an annoying question that I hope plagues your day. (laughs) It has this past week for me and as I have thought about St. Valentine, like, uh, did he want it? I, th- I think so. I think he had a different type of cultural environment that pressed in on him an urgency to cling to Jesus. And for the longest of time I don't know if there was really any urgency for me to cling to Jesus. And still now I don't know what that means. Um, But what if we prepared our hearts so that we actually might feel that urgency? We might allow that urgency to creep in so that we would have a single devotion to Jesus. Because when Valentine was pressed, he would not renounce Jesus. He did not offer a sacrifice to a foreign God. And when he would not divide his devotion, Rome divided him. And so I don't know which way your coworkers seek to divide you or the way your social media platform or whatever that might look like seek to divide you or your, I don't know, progressive friends or your conservative family or flip and flop that. There is division aplenty, but Jesus is inviting us into something that he is interested in partnering with us, is cutting away some of those dead areas so that we might love and live. And I think that there's a type of cutting that ultimately leads to life. There's a type of cutting that leads to death, but there is a type of cutting that leads to life. And I just think that Jesus is clearly leading us to this place where he's saying, I want to cut the bonds of sin that entangle you. I actually want to be with you in the midst of that. I want to be with you in the hurt. I want to be with you in the frustration. And and I'm inviting you to be with me. And inevitably, when we are with Jesus, we will experience the frustration of the narrow way. But isn't that the Like part and parcel of freedom? Because freedom, if you've only ever been captive, is frightening. Think of any movie about a prison. Just think Shawshank Redemption. If you've not seen it, maybe give it a watch. But inevitably, there is a character who's been imprisoned for so long that at the prospect of their release, they want nothing to do with freedom because it is more frightening than the captivity they've known. And inevitably, what they do, this character, is that they commit a crime in their captivity so they can remain there. Jesus is inviting us to actually live as free people because the promise is relational, but the risk is being known.